Hello, I'm Simon Bowes. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Carbon, 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 carbon. We talk about it all the time. We know what it is. Do we know how it comes? What form it makes? Well, if you're looking at what people call emissions, in general terms, emissions and carbon, kind of, you can, you can swap the same thing. Now, that's not technically exactly true because there are other things that make emissions things such as particulates and other chemicals which are very damaging but in reality for us to try and keep to the Paris agreement the 1.5 what we've got to do is try and absorb some of the carbon that we've been emitting for the last 200 years. Now lots of people have talked about carbon capture and storage you may have heard the term CCS is it really the way forward? A lot of people believe it is and a lot of people are detractors because of the amount of energy it takes and where do you put the stuff and how do you store it. The government have been flirting around with this for many years. Uh, if you remember back long enough to the days of, of the Cameron government, uh, they were talking about investing a billion pounds in carbon capture technology back in 2012, if I remember right. Didn't quite come off. Drax has been the, the big... Uh, company, uh, energy company, has been developing biomass and it wants to do something called BEX, which is Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Storage. And the government seemed to be backing it, but in the recent budget, there was a bit of uh, cold water pulled on that with, with them saying, we're going to just hold off on uh, going for that project. So where does this leave us in terms of carbon capture? I personally think it still has a role to play. But as I say, there are lots of people who say, is it really worth the energy and the money that it costs to do it properly? Today, we're going to discuss that with uh, Ian Tobin from a company called Carbon Clean. Ian, hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Um, so you're the uh, chief corporate officer at Carbon Clean. In a nutshell, what, what is Carbon Clean all about? Can you tell our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So Carbon Clean has innovative technologies for capturing the CO2 component out of industrial emissions. And these, just for the listeners, you know, the CO2 content can be a concentration of anywhere from about five to 20 percent of the of the gases that come out of industrial plants. So we uh, we have technology, we have a we have process and we have plants that we build, uh, particularly modular plants that are easy to deploy. Um, through the machinery, through the solvent and the technology, we actually interact with that emission gas and we pull the carbon dioxide molecules out. We capture up to 90, sort of 95 percent. Um, and then we take that CO2 off to be compressed, transported or stored. And that's probably it in a nutshell. The sort of principles behind that have been proven for a long, long time, many decades. Yeah. Um, we just do it much more efficiently using our solvent and process. That has been done before. So let's let's do basic idiot science because I'm an idiot. So I want to. I like, I like to hear. This. So I know. Let's take a cement works or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And they're producing the cement. They use a lot of chemicals. They produce CO2 emissions, same as steel works do. That stuff is normally just a mess in in a mixed gas that's effluent or whatever what do you do do you build a kind of uh, i don't know some sort of big hoover that sucks that all into a, a a plant is it is it something that attaches to the flue gases is it a separate yeah. sort of machine explain if you could paint a picture for how the, this technology would work 
Yeah, so we keep it relatively simple. Effectively, our carbon capture plant is that it's a separate machine. And what we do is we plug into the flue gas outlet. So if you imagine a cement plant, it has a chimney effectively where these flue gases are pumped normally into the atmosphere. Yeah. Yep. So we take all of that flue gas and we pre-scrub it. We clean it up for all sorts of things that would make the carbon capture process less efficient. So other chemicals and things that we take out of that as well. So it's, it's quite useful. It's not just the CO2 that, that comes out of this process. We actually clean other things out of it. And then we're left with a gas that's got this percentage of up to sort of 20% of CO2 content, depending on the industry. We will then process that flue gas and we have an exchange of the solvent. So we mix our solvent with that flue gas in our process. Yep. Yep. The solvent pulls out just the CO2 molecules. So what's yep. left it then goes either out of the chimney or goes on to be processed in other ways for other things. Um, and then we've just got a solvent that's rich in CO2. And then we heat that solvent that releases the CO2. The CO2 is pretty pure CO2 not far off food grade quality, actually, and, and CO2 is used in a lot of things. Um, but we then compress it so we can chill it down. We can then make it very uh, transportable. And then there's a whole raft of use cases like e-fuels um, that are up and coming um, and various other uses. If you want to use it in food grade, um, you just do one simple process beyond that to make that usable to put carbon dioxide into gas, into beer and fizzy drinks and packaged food. All these things that you read about last year or two. Yeah, yeah. There's a shortage of CO2, ironically. There's a couple of questions that obviously come to mind. Right. Um, I did a podcast just a couple of weeks ago about e-fuels. I was very interested in, in those. So that's that's I can get that. So you've got the carbon dioxide, people sort of use the hydrogen that's clean hydrogen you can you can spin that off the solvent you're using now obviously <clears throat> nothing comes without a price so what happens to that solvent how toxic is it does it have its own emission footprint what do you do with it can you recycle it talk us through that yes no i mean it's a pretty inert solvent i mean again getting getting into the detail is it's tricky but uh, the solvent is very long lasting and our, our solvent particularly is long lasting um, you know, there's no huge adverse environmental effect from that. And when the solvent is used, you, do, you don't get solvent leaking really much into the atmosphere through the process. Um, and when it needs um, replenishment, we take that away and process it. So that that part of it is not actually um, something for people to be worrying about. Right. And then d that solvent, I mean, can you reuse it or do you have to make a new batch? No, we make a new batch. We make a new right. batch of that. Yeah. Okay. So how efficient is your process? Well, I mean, when you we'll take out somewhere between 99 to 95% of the CO2 in the emissions. So actually the emissions that are left have a very, very low concentration of CO2. If you think they start somewhere between typically the average is around 12%, right? So we're going to take, you say, 90, 93% of that 12%. So there's very yeah. little CO2 that's left in the emissions when it comes out so that it's it's a very very efficient process expense is the other criticism right people say the technology for carbon capture yes you can do it but it's flipping expensive and does it then actually stack up so how do you how does your technology compare in terms of the cost you know profile and, and ratio for for making it you know a, a fiscally dare i say the word solvent way of doing this no absolutely and this has been the problem with carbon capture but there are a number of reasons why it's been expensive well for, foremost is typically carbon capture plants and i want to just give you a statistic here actually something because this is really important 
for listeners. Yeah. Industrial emission. Industrially, we emit 10 billion tons of CO2 per annum just from industry. Okay. That's without all of the other things like cars and everything else. Okay. 10 billion tons. The worldwide capacity to capture is only 40 million tons. Right. And the IA says that we actually need to be getting over 5 billion tons of capture to avoid climate catastrophe. So this is the scale of the problem. Okay. Now, in terms of efficiency, yeah, when you think about the plants, and there aren't many plants that have actually been built in the world, but when you think... No, about- yeah, we, w- we went to see one, I think, uh, Mongstad, I think, in Norway, I think it was years ago. Mm. And that was huge. That was a huge plant working. Well, and they have been, and traditionally they've been very, very large, 500 sort of million dollars. Correct. Huge capital expenditure, which is why I suppose they never really took off. That's right. And they take five to 10 years to come online and there's a lot of risk around them. So part of reducing this is to have a more standardized modular solution, which you can produce in large volumes, because just like wind, just like solar, if you can start to produce this at scale to a standard design, the costs fall dramatically of the capital expenditure. And that's actually what we're doing. We've got a a product called Cyclone CC, which is a fully modular solution, comes in different sizes. And the other interesting thing about doing that is two thirds of industrial sites in the world actually have very little space. They're in urban, suburban areas. They have very little space where you can build a typical bespoke carbon capture plant, which is huge. So our Cyclone CC plants are 10 times smaller than a standard technology design. And so they're also mobile. We can take them back of trucks in containers on the back of trucks and deliver them. So we can put them in a lot more places. We can produce loads of them to a standard design and really drive the cost down. So that's part of the equation on how you reduce cost and how you then increase take up across the world's industry. The other part is operating costs, long-term operating costs. Now, yeah. the, the main component really is energy, right? Because what you're actually doing is you're having to heat the solvent to release the gas. Yeah, exactly. But actually, you know, the proportion of CO2 that is captured versus the proportion potentially expended in driving the energy component is low. So you still there's still a massive benefit from doing this. Carbon clean solvent has very little water loss, so as, as a low water content. And this is really important for heating. It's much more energy efficient in heating. So that's a big play because you're going to run this thing for 20, 25 years, right? So actually low solvent loss and lower energy in heating is what it's all about. When you add that up, the operating cost is higher than the capex over its lifetime. So if you can bring the operating cost down, that's another important feature. But Cyclone CC also uses, and you get this a bit from the name, instead of tall towers where we sort of drip feed the solvent to mix with the flue gas, we actually compact it all through what's called a rotating packed bed. And this is a very fast spinning, um, you could almost liken it to a washing machine, spins at very high revolutions. And what that does is it intensifies the way in which the solvent mixes with that flue gas. So that brings your energy cost down again, because the plant you're operating is smaller and more effective. It's funny, as we were talking, I was just having a read through. It it, it was Mongstad, which is um, in in Norway. We, We went to film it. Uh, back in 2013, 2014. And if, unfortunately, it got cancelled. And I'm reading here about why it got cancelled. It was basically, it was because of, as you said, the cost. They couldn't see the efficiencies of it. And the scale of it was so big that the investment decisions couldn't be made to, to make it from a test site, which was enormous anyway, to a fully running plant. Yeah. Is this the real issue that, you know, a bit like nuclear, a, a bit like any big, huge capital investment, 
you know, people are talking about modular reactors and nuclear, and now you're talking about this kind of system, you've got your cyclone system. Mm. It seems to me that carbon capture in principle sounds a good idea, but globally, it is still not something that governments feel they've got the ability to back, because unless a government backs it, as you well know, private sector won't back it. So where do you see carbon capture as a technology sitting globally in terms of its kind of the go-to method of technology to try and cut our emissions down? Well, look, it has to be a tool in the toolbox. I mean, there's a lot of ways we need to decarbonise what we, you know, what our footprint is in the world. And as I've mentioned, with 10 billion tonnes and growing of emissions from industry, you've got to capture the CO2. And to say we don't need to do it is, is wrong, actually. Of course, things that are really catching up now, what do you do with the CO2? And so utilisation or storage is key to this. Yeah. So there's huge investment going into repurposing where we got the carbon, a lot of the carbon from in the first place putting it back into the oil and gas wells and storing it there for, for millennia. And in addition to that, a lot of investment now into e-fuels. Um, and we are actually involved in a landmark project in, in partnership with Orsted in Sweden called Flagship One, where we are taking the, the CO2 output from a biomass energy plant and using the energy from the biomass energy plant, so all green energy, to actually create uh, an e-fuel for shipping. And we're, we're really excited and that project is actually commenced. It's, it's re- received approval for its financials and we're actually starting work on that this year. So this is super exciting. And I could point to a whole load of other projects like that. So going forward, utilization storage need to be partner and partner with what we do with CO2. So that in itself creates some economic case for the capture in okay. the first place as That's well. what I was trying to get to because at the end of the day, let's be honest, we've got to make money out of it, right? Because if we don't make money out of it, no one will invest in these things. And we have the double, we have the double win. I either make money or neutralise the cost. I mean, that, that's really it. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, and there's no, no shame in that because nothing comes as a free lunch. So we've got to look at that. Do you think, and, and that's great what you're trying to do with Austin and all of that, but all of these things, and, and, and I've read some other articles about places around the world where they're looking at various forms of, CCS technology, but it doesn't seem to have that ease of which, for example, offshore wind does, where people go, governments go, we're going to do it, here's the, here's the funding, go for it, all right? Or solar panel. But that's because, Is that, that's because it's, it's much newer. Ah, I mean, if you go back to when, again. if you go back to when, Sorry. No, no, no. This is the point I'm trying to get to, because I, I'm yeah. wondering whether, in a way, it's become... I'm probably slagging off all politicians, but is it too complex an idea to get across, right? It's very easy to say, look, there's a wind turbine. It makes clean energy. Everyone gets that. Oh, that's a plant that sucks carbon out. And they go, uh, what do you mean? Well, I, I think it's actually a relatively simple message. We're pumping a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere from our industry. And if we want to meet carbon reduction targets, we need to stop pumping that into the atmosphere. It's relatively simple in my view. I think... You know, just like solar, just like wind, a lot of people, when they say is when they were first launched, it was vastly expensive, wouldn't work. We should do other things like nuclear only. But look at it now. I mean, and and what's created that is the cost being driven down. And this is really what we need to do with CO2. But you do that by standardization. I mean, the mass production of wind, the mass production of solar that's driven the cost down. The same is actually going to happen with the... uh, Electrolyzers for hydrogen, they're very expensive now because we don't make a lot of them. But when you make a lot of something, it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. I mean, the government is up for it, right? The government's net zero review said CCE 
US is is a priority for the government. And I know that you know I've got some people I know quite senior in in working in bears, nares, whatever it's called now, dunares. <laughs> and and they get it. And they they but there seems to be, and this is very interesting what you've been talking about. The general thought has been capture it and use you know the strata that we've got around from X, as you said earlier, oil fields that we've got and put the stuff in storage. But maybe actually what will unlock CCS is the ability to make money out of the carbon, which is to, as you say, e-fuels, put it into industry, reuse it again and again and again, rather than locking it away. Do you think this is, you know, when you talk to colleagues or rivals in different fields, but you're all together in the carbon capture field, do you see that's where you think this this will unlock, you know, to do that thing we just talked about with wind and solar to really push it? is that you start to make use of it rather than I'm just hiding it away under the carpet by storing it underground. I actually think both, to be honest with right. you. I mean, I think, and, and, and it's because it sometimes depends on the geography. And of course, we're trying to catch up. We, we can actually deploy carbon capture widely now, but we're also trying to catch up with the transportation of that CO2 and then the actual infrastructure to you to, to turn it into something to be used or stored. Yeah. And they're longer term projects. I mean, repurposing wells for storage is not, not an overnight job. You don't just flick a switch. Uh, it has to go through permitting and approvals and all of these things. And the governments around the world are all catching up to this and it will speed up. So you've got to keep pushing on the storage side as well. But I think, I think there's a, a point for both. Storage is going to be a lot more accessible in some areas. Like you look at the southern United States on the Gulf yeah. Coast, you know, they will actually have a lot of storage coming online over the next decade. But there'll be other pockets of Europe, for example, a long way from storage. And so they are primed for utilization. So I think, again, it's a it's a, a whole bag you need to put together and not just focus on one. Yeah, I, I met, as I said, just before we started recording, uh, I met uh, your CEO and rather uh, who's, who's Indian. And we were talking uh, just before we, we were chatting at the International Energy Week forum there. And I said to him, these sort of things do sound great in certain areas, but will they work in developing nations? Will they work in India and Brazil and parts of Saharan Africa, you know, where emissions, uncontrolled industrial pollution goes on in those areas? And it's all very well us saying we're going to do this in, dare I say, richer countries, but where do you see the role of this globally? Because if we're going to do this properly, we have to we have to start abating the emissions and the, the gases that are coming out of industrial plants all over the world. So in your view, how do you see this being a, sort of an equitable global player? Um, I mean, look, we're seeing a passion to do this everywhere. And there's a very good reason for that. If you think about developing nations, you know, who do they actually supply to? A lot of their supplies to the developed world. Yeah. And companies are under a lot of pressure from their investors and shareholders yeah. to prove their carbon footprints and their ESG credentials. It's, it's uh, you know, so these customers, which are based in the developed world, demand decarbonization of the products they're buying. So it, it sort of propagates that way. But I think also probably important to recognize that a lot of these developing countries, the governments are equally pushing to put frameworks yes. in place and incentivize decarbonization themselves. I mean, you look at China, it, it's yeah, yeah. probably going to become the largest consumer of electric vehicles in the world. You know, so I think there's a lot of reasons to be very optimistic that the developing world will follow suit. Uh, before we end, let's just a couple of things, which is obviously, if you look at the US, the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, you know, that's gone to 
people say it's going to supercharge all the stuff they're doing around net zero. We've been a bit more hesitant here. I feel the government, to be fair to them, is positive towards this. Does the industry need that? Does it need some sort of government-based statutory boost? Or do you think the industry is now ready to start sitting or standing on its own feet and going, actually, we've got the ability, like you say, the stuff you're doing, other companies are doing, innovative work that brings the cost down we can do it through market forces the governments do need to incentivize and the main reason they need to incentivize is to develop the supply chain and develop the level of production as we've covered that already and talked about it you don't get the cost down unless you massively increase the volume of which 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 you mean legislative levers are needed for that to create the market they they are so in the u.s you know there's basically an incentive per ton for 12 years towards the cost and in fact even while we're over there for sarah week uh, a few a few weeks back the um, the the secretary for energy actually announced six billion dollars of 50 percent funding for the initial capex on top of that so look these things are really important to get the supply chain built they're actually you'd be very surprised there's not many companies in the world that have carbon capture technology that can be fabricated and deployed today there's actually lots of quite interesting ideas coming along but they're very very early development stage and there's only a handful of companies that actually supply carbon capture technology and carbon cleans one of these so we've really got to ramp up all of us have really got to ramp up production to a huge degree to try to capture five billion tons a year of this stuff yeah what the government needs to do is to figure out how do I, A, massively boost demand and there, as a result of that, massively boost supply, yes. whilst recognising that the growth in demand and the matching of supply will take five to ten years. So what do I do to bring those together? I need to incentivize against the cost for that period of time. And this is what the Inflation Reduction Act does so well because of the up to 85 cents per tonne, uh, sorry, $85 per tonne that it actually contributes to this. So... I think the UK is following a slightly different path. They're following more of a cluster path, yes. which is an interesting yep. way. You know, let's let's invest in very large scale capture projects and storage. But, but the UK is doing that also for job reasons. You know, where those these plants are generally are the places that were in the fossil fuel world and, and have been devastated in terms of employment. So huge swathes of the northeast, places like that, Hull, all of that. So I could see why they're doing it. Do you, do you think that that's it's a different way of doing it. Do you think it, it, it will do the same thing as the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, look, it, it is an interesting way. I mean, you know, you're right near where you can pump this stuff off into the North Sea for long-term Correct, storage. Yeah. And typically they're, they're looking where there's a whole cluster of industries and you can gather all the CO2 in one place and pump it offshore. So there's nothing particularly, you know, wrong with the thinking there. But of course, the process is very much detailed one-by-one negotiations mm. for each project government is doing the selection yeah. of these projects the government is putting all its eggs in a couple of baskets I suppose <laughs> um the the difference with things like the inflation reduction act and indeed what the U- Canada are doing and what the EU are looking at doing is they're just saying everybody come to the party right here's an incentive for anyone who wants to get into carbon capture to buy it and supply it and you're going to get probably a much more rapid scaling and ramping up of carbon capture technologies and supply chains and bring the cost down through that approach. Yeah, do you feel we'll be left behind a bit? Ian? Well, I'm, we're encouraging the government to look at a, a wider approach to it because the, the UK government you know, does want, quite rightly, to develop the supply chain for carbon capture technology in the UK. But 
in order to incentivize that, you've got to have customers for it in the UK. Now, they're not really doing much. They're not really, with their cluster approach, doing a lot in that vein because they're focusing on a few key projects that they're selecting. Yeah. Whereas in the US, if you know they can incentivize hundreds and potentially thousands of projects through the Inflation Reduction Act, that's where you would manufacture. And I do worry a little, just like wind, that we actually can be great innovators in this space. And we're very grateful to the UK government. You know, they actually, uh, we founded in India actually as a company, but in 2012, we relocated to the UK based on funding and investment from the UK government. Um, we're a great innovative nation. And, you know, we're very passionate to see us actually become the supplier of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go, I do this nearly on every podcast. People are probably bored of it, but I do like to do my little time machine. So 2030, in fact, no, let's, let's give you a bit more time. Let's go 2040. Have we got clusters of carbon capture plants sitting next to our factories? Are we absorbing a good chunk of the carbon we're emitting? Where do you see it? I, I'm very confident that by 2040, it will be quite a different landscape. I think there will be substantial transportation networks and, and infrastructure in place that smaller plants in, in more diverse locations can plug into or put their CO2 into. I think there'll be more innovative uses and reuses of CO2. As I said, e-fuels, I think, is going to become a huge part of how we power our ships and and, and jets and so forth. Um, so I am optimistic of that. And I think there'll be a lot of storage available at that, at that time where we don't want to reuse the CO2. So yes, I think by then, I would expect it to be where probably wind will get to in the next five to 10 years, that it's just everywhere. Right. Bold. A good vision to end on. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Help. Can I control energy costs for my business? How do I electrify my transport? Is cutting emissions hard? What is carbon negative? You'll get the answers to all these questions and more at the Big Zero Show on the 20th of June at the CBS Arena in Coventry. Register for your free ticket now. Big names. Big opportunities. BigZeroShow.com You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com Better business better planet.